Chapter Nine of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Nine. Although at such lucid moments I would sometimes go a soaring up into the most dazzling dreams, more often I would plunge in gloom. For Eleanor's dreams and all her thoughts seemed centered on her father. From each corner of that watery world, no matter how far we wandered, the high tower from which he looked down on it all would suddenly loom above the horizon. Over the dreariest marshes it peeped, and into all our talk he came. A marsh was a place that he was to transform. Oily odors were things he would sweep away. For every abuse that I could discover, her father was working out some cure. With a whole corps of engineers drafting his dreams into practicable plans, there was no end to the things he could do. Here is a girl, I told myself, so selfishly wrapped up in her father she hasn't a thought for anyone else. She's using me to boom his work, as she has doubtless used writers before me, and will use dozens more when I'm gone. No doubt she would like to have dozens of me sitting right here beside her now. It's not at all a romantic thought, but think how she could use me then, and I would glower at her. But it is a lonely, desolate job to sit and glower at a girl who appears so placidly unaware of the fact that you are glowering, and slowly emerging from my gloom I would wonder about this love that was in her. At times when she talked she made me feel small. My own love for my mother, how utterly selfish it had been! Here was a passion so deep and so real it made her almost forget I was there, asking questions, hungrily watching her, trying to learn about her life. When I was in school, she said in that low, deliberate voice of hers, my father and I went abroad every summer. We tramped in the Alps for weeks at a time, keeping way off the beaten paths to watch the work of the Swiss engineers. One of them was a woman. We saw the bridge she'd built over a gorge, and I became deeply excited. Until then I had never had any idea that I could go into my father's work, but now I wondered if I could. That winter in school I really worked. I was dreadfully dull at mathematics, but I wouldn't see it. I made up my mind to go to Cornell for the course on engineering. I worked like a slave for two years to get ready, and just succeeded in getting in. Then, toward the middle of freshman year, I realized that I was becoming a quite absurdly solemn young grind. There were over a hundred girls in college, but I had made barely any friends and so I firmly resolved to be gay. I made a regular business of it and worked my way into clubs and dances, hunting for the girls I liked and scheming to make them like me, too. By May I was way behind in my work. I tried to make up. I began cramming every night until one or two in the morning, and I passed my examinations. But that summer I broke down. My father had to drop his work and take me abroad for an operation, and by the time we got back he had lost nearly six months of his time. I decided that as an engineer I was a dismal failure. I'd much better give my father a chance. So when he took up this work in New York I spent all my time on our new apartment. 
I loved fussing with it, I shopped like a bee, and this kept me busy all autumn. Besides, I was going about with Sue. She had managed me long ago at school, and I was glad to let her now, for I was hunting for new ideas. But Sue put me on so many committees that by spring my nerves were in shreds, and again for weeks I was flat on my back. One evening, then, when my father came home and sat down by my bedside, it came over me all of a sudden, the wonderful quiet strength in his hand, in the look in his eyes. "'Where have you been?' I asked him. "'Down on the harbor,' he told me. Since eight in the morning he'd been in a launch exploring it all. I shut my eyes, my wretched eyelids quivering, and I made him describe the whole day's trip while I tried to see it all in my mind. Soon I was feeling deliciously quiet. "'I'm going down there, too,' I thought. By the next evening I had the idea for this boat. When I told him he was delighted, and we both grew excited over the plans, which he drew by my bed. I made him draw dozens. At last it was built and lay at its dock. And I packed all I needed into a trunk and we came down in a taxi. It was a lovely May afternoon, and we had a beautiful ride up the Hudson. And from then on through the summer I hardly went ashore at all. I knew if I did it would spoil it all. Every night we slept on board in those two cozy little bunks. I learned to cook here. Soon I was able to run the boat and even to help my father a little. I knew just enough about his work to go places for him and save his time. I'd forgotten I ever had any nerves, for I felt I belonged to something now that got way down to the roots of things. Do you see what I mean? This harbor isn't like a hotel or an evening gown or Weber and Fields. I love pretty gowns, and my father and I wouldn't miss Weber and Fields for worlds. But they're all on top. This is down at the bottom. It's one of those deep places that seem to make the world go round. It's right where the ocean bumps into the land. You can get your roots here. You can feel you are real. You see what my father is doing is to take this whole harbor and study it hard. Not just the water, the shipping and docks, for when he says the port of New York he means all the railroads too, and he's studying how they all come in and why it is that everything has become so frightfully snarled. A lot of big shipping men are behind him, and he's to draw up a plan for it all which they're going to give to the city to use, to make this port what it's got to be, the very first in the ocean world. It's one of those slow, tremendous pieces of work. It will take years to carry it out, and hundreds of millions of dollars. My father thinks there's hardly a chance that he'll ever live to see it all done. I know he will. I'm sure he will. He's the kind of a man who keeps himself young. But whether he really sees it or not, or gets any credit, he doesn't care. That's the kind of a person my father is, Eleanor added softly. My father wants to meet you, she told me toward the end of June, at one of those times when she let the boat drift while we had long absorbing talks. He has read that thing you wrote about the German sea hog, and he thinks it's awfully well done. That's good of him, I said gruffly. Somehow or other it always makes me uncomfortable when people talk about my work. When they criticize I am annoyed, and when they praise I am uneasy. What do they know about it? They spent an hour reading what it took me weeks to write. 
They don't even know what I tried to do, nor do they care. They haven't time. I never feel so cut off from people, so utterly alone in the world, as when some benevolent person says, I like that little story of yours. Instantly I shut up like a clam. I liked it too, said Eleanor. Did you? I asked delightedly. Far from retiring into my shell, I wanted at once to open up and make her feel how much I had missed in that crude effort. Soon she had me talking about it, and while I talked on eagerly, I tried to guess from her questions whether she'd read it more than once. Finally I guessed she had. And glancing at her now and then, I wondered how much she could ever know about me or I about her. Really know and the intimacy I saw ahead loomed radiant and boundless. I strained every nerve to show her myself, to show her the very best of myself. But then I heard her ask me, "'Wouldn't you like to talk to my father?' Here was a fine end to it all. "'I don't know,' I answered gloomily. I could see already those engineer eyes moving amusedly down my pages. I could see her watching his face and getting to feel as he did about me. "'What good would it do?' I added. "'What good would it do?' Her sharply offended tone brought me back with a jerk to try to explain. "'Don't you see what I mean?' I asked eagerly. "'Why should a man as busy as he is waste his time on a kid like me? After all that you've told me about him, I feel sometimes as though all the writers on earth don't count any more, because all the really big things are being done by men like your father.' "'That's much better,' said Eleanor. "'Only, of course, it isn't true. "'If you poor little writers want to get big and really count,' she went on serenely, "'all you have to do is to write about my father.' "'I'll begin the minute you say so,' I told her. "'Then it's arranged,' said my companion, with an exceedingly comfortable sigh. "'We've taken a cottage up on the Sound for the summer,' she continued, "'and we're moving up to-morrow.' Suppose you come up over Sunday. Thanks, I'd love to, I replied. So she's to be away for months, I added dismally to myself. No more of these long afternoons. End of chapter 9 Recording by Tom Weiss